this Republican Party have shown themselves to be over the past three and a half plus years, terrorists. They have shown themselves to be domestic terrorists. They have shown themselves in many ways to be traitors to this nation. Why the hell would you negotiate with terrorists? Thank you for tuning in to the Major Look Podcast with me, Deontay. This is our election day version. I'm in conversation today with Dr. Avis Jones DeWeaver. She is an international speaker, an award-winning author, a political strategist, a media commentator, and a Black women's leadership specialist. We talk about the election, among other things. So sit back, relax, and please enjoy. And don't forget to rate the podcast, share the podcast, and if you believe in what we do here at the Major Look Podcast, please don't hesitate to donate to our cash app at dollar sign DSU01. Uh, Dr. Avis, thank you for joining me in conversation today on this episode of the Major Look Podcast. Was there a flashpoint moment in your life where you realized being a leadership specialist um, and being so deeply involved in politics was your calling or was it a byproduct of your upbringing or education? I would say that it's uh, both and in terms of there was a flash moment, but also it's very much a, a byproduct of my environment and upbringing. Um, the flashpoint, though, um, was something called the Greensboro Massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, people can Google that if you're not familiar with what that is. But generally speaking, this was a moment that I remember as a child. I was watching uh, the news. My parents were watching the news, I guess. And I was watching the Air Force since we only have like one television. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I remember it was being covered on the news that there were a people, a group of black people who were protesting. They, no, yeah, they were, they were, they were protesting. They were just, they were marching, peacefully protesting. And um, what happened was there were literally uh, some Klan members who came and murdered uh, people involved with that protest. And the thing that um, got me was that it was covered on the news that not just the murder, they actually had video of the attack. Um, but, um, you know, I'm sure people today aren't surprised to hear that the, uh, the, the criminals, the murderers, uh, were found not guilty. Um, and so no one ever received justice uh, from that murderous attack. And I can't really remember how old I was when that happened, but I remember that distinctly. I remember the news coverage of it. I remember thinking, this is on video, like well before cell phones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this was actually, um, I guess they were just covering the actual protest when all of this happened. Uh, and uh, in essence, they got away with murder. Um, the perpetrators got away with murder. Uh, and I think that had a big part of uh, opening my eyes very early on to injustice and what injustice looks like in this nation, particularly as it relates to race. I think another thing that, or a series of things um, around awakening that within me uh, has definitely been my uh, upbringing and my parents um, and the stories that they always told throughout my childhood. My parents. Uh, grew up uh, in the Jim Crow South era, right? And so all the stories uh, that were shared with me around um, not only what that situation was like, they never really shared stories that centered them in any way, shape, or form as victims. Uh, They shared stories that really lifted up what they did to fight back, right? And so one small example um, my mother would share the story about how, uh, you know, as a young girl going to school in Virginia, segregated Virginia, how when she was walking to school every day, you know, the state of Virginia only provided school buses for white children. And so what would happen is the, uh, the school buses would drive past black children walking to school and the white children would like uh, put the windows down on the bus and taunt them, for example, as they were walking, as they were driving by. 
Um, so my mom tells me, she would tell me about the fact that her mother, her parents, um, were very active in bringing together other black parents who lived uh, in the area. And they ultimately pooled their money together to buy their own school bus. And then they took turns driving that bus mm. to get their children back and forth safely to school every day. And so, I mean, that's just one example, but there are a gazillion stories like that that I heard growing up. And it provided me with, along with just witnessing a very sort of empowered family, a father who was an entrepreneur, who uh, used his entrepreneurship to not only break his family out of uh, sharecropping, but ultimately be an anchor of wealth um, for his family and for others, uh, black families all across North Carolina, given that he had a lumber company and um, when he, he specifically started it because at the time that he started his company, um, black people across North Carolina wanted to buy houses or wanted to, you know, wanted to have houses that they owned, but no white lumber companies would sell them the wood to be able to build their own houses. Right? And so my father's business did that. Uh, so in many ways, his business was an anchor for, for black wealth in North Carolina. So sort of being raised in an environment uh, did two things for me. Um, number one, uh, and also, you know, I'm lucky in that, unlike some people I know, I, I was raised with the privilege of knowing that I was loved from day one, which is an awesome advantage to have in life. Um, but secondly, being surrounded by that sort of, you know, quiet activism. I mean, these are not people that you'll read about in the history books. But they are people who rebelled in, in, in a variety of ways against the oppression that they faced in their time. And so, you know, I then sort of grew up in this environment where I not only understood injustice, but I also understood that you do not have to be satisfied with injustice that you can fight back against injustice and you can win. And a strong understanding that though I'm not better than anyone, but damn sure nobody's better than me. So I think those assets were drilled in me from the beginning uh, such that they have just become almost like a, to a cellular level who I am to this day. I completely understand. So it sounds like it's, it's a lot in your DNA. And for the listener, um, she said the Greensboro massacre, which I believe occurred, uh, was that the sixties when that occurred? How was the seventies? Probably seven. Probably okay. Okay. Not to be confused with the fictional Bowling Green massacre of, uh, Kellyanne Conway fame. Um, right. So, so what I find, um, most engaging about your political commentary, and that's kind of how I came to know you through your political commentary on television is your ability to recognize um, what I would consider to be collective failure in real time. Now, I'm not saying that you're always correct or that I always agree. <laughs> right? <laughs> now, I'm not saying that you're always correct or that I always find myself agreeing with you. Often I do find myself agreeing with you and often I do find that you are ahead of the curve, so to speak, in terms of your analysis. Um, <clears throat> but you deliver your analysis with such a clarity that for some public intellectuals only comes with the benefit of hindsight. It feels like a, a black mom who asks her child a question she already knows the answer to, but she wants to give the child a chance to tell the truth. Um, is that natural to you or is that something that you worked on? Honestly, I do think it's natural. It's really interesting. I had a client uh, about two years ago who was very much into, see, I'm a very, if I were to describe myself, I would say that I'm kind of like a spotlight thinker. Mm -hmm. I'm a very sort of logical thinker. I'm really not that much into like, ooh, ooh, you know, that type of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, but she was saying, you know, uh, you know, I have this, she was telling me about these things, this thing that she had that you know, it was in essence basically like this, this, this quiz or some sort of measure, some sort of test that you would take. And it was meant to uncover some of your natural gifts. 
and uh, in essence, um, a natural gift that, according to this test, and, and you know, after this, I became more aware of this because before it was just it was just me. Um, but according to that, uh, one of my natural gifts is, in essence, almost like prophecy, right? And I never really thought of that before. Um, at all, and I'm not saying that I necessarily am saying that I am a prophet or that I have this, you know, I can see into the future, but what it did do for me was that it allowed me to trust my instincts more, you know what I mean? And it allowed me to uh, just say, if I am believing something, even if it's completely counter to what everybody else is saying, Mm -hmm. who's to say that my perception of the situation is any less um, has any less of a probability of actually being right. In fact, it'll, it just allowed me to sort of lean into my natural instinct to go with my gut. And I have just found over time that when I go with my gut, even if it's against the brain, that more often than not, it does not lead me in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I do think that that is part of that political analysis side of the coin as well. I, I'm just sharing what I perceive to be the the case based on facts. Definitely, I'm a very fact-driven person. I'm a very data-driven person. Mm-hmm. But I also go with my gut and my intuition. And I think when you um, combine all, all of those things together, that's probably what results in, in what you witness. But it's very interesting. I've never heard anyone say that before, but I will, I will definitely own it, absolutely, because I'm not afraid to be the only one saying A when everybody else is saying B. I have no problem with that. And and I want to kind of stick on that subject of um, following your intuition. And I, I want to use that as a, a critique <clears throat> against um, the Democratic Party in the sense that they don't seem to have an intuition about realizing the type of fight they are in and how their opponent intends to fight. And I, and I, and when I say that, I'm thinking about, of course, the recent confirmation of uh, Miss Barrett to the Supreme court to fill the, or to, to have uh, filled that ninth vacancy, which is the third justice Donald Trump uh, as president has appointed to the Supreme court. And I, and I link that to the fact that she's so young, she's never actually tried a case. She's never argued a case in front of the Supreme Court. I mean, if you would look at her credentials, the only thing that she has going for herself is that she is an extremely conservative. They call it an originalist. She's young. She'll be there for a while. They, they can pretty much predict how she's going to rule on matters such as abortion or such as elections, which I'm sure will come up shortly. But it's not a situation where they just found her and all of a sudden, boom, it's it's a miracle that's put on the court. This is a culmination of 20, 30, 40 years of planning that that went into this. And if it wasn't going to be Miss Barrett, it would be someone just like her who yeah. had the same type of credentials and believed in the same things. And, and, and it just so happens that Trump was elected in 2016, so it allowed them to execute their plan when they held the Senate. And so this is what I'm talking about when I say that the Democrats don't realize what type of fight that they are in and how their opponents intend to wage battle. Why, why is it that they are so inept at that? Oh, my God. I, that's a million dollar question. I have some thoughts. Right. <laughs> First of all, I'm going to say you are absolutely correct. It is as if... The uh, Republicans are playing three-dimensional chess, and mm. the Democrats are playing marbles. Mm-hmm. They, they're not even at the checkers level. Right. Okay? Um, and it's so annoying because how many times do you have to have you know Lucy pull away the football before you realize what the heck is going on? You know, exactly. it is is super super annoying. So why do they keep making the same mistakes? I think I think there are a couple of different reasons. The, the culture of the Democratic Party, to me, and the culture of the Republican Party are two very different things. Uh, I believe that the Democratic Party, they take pride 
in this culture of wanting to be the experts who can govern. Their, their priority is governing. I believe the uh, Republicans are gangsters who want power. Mm. Period. That, that really is at base the difference. And so that's why you have Democrats who even in the face of everything that we've just witnessed, not just in the past, you know, four years in essence, roughly, with the Trump presidency, but even prior to that, the past eight years of the Obama presidency, where the Republicans were just uh, for the six years that they had power in Congress, complete and utter obstructionists. Hmm. I mean, you had. Not only did you have this whole situation set up with, in essence, stealing two Supreme Court seats to put us in a situation now where Trump, in, in essence, three and a half years, got three appointments to the Supreme Court. But you also had a situation where, um, you know, uh, you wouldn't have had Obama have any general appointments if they would not have changed sort of a filibuster rule in the Senate because um, they were going to block all of his appointments. And then... Even then, even after that, um, when uh, the when you did have uh, the Republicans take control of the Senate, then you had Mitch McConnell um, obstruct from there. Where by the time that um, uh, Trump came into office, there were over a hundred empty seats in terms of federal judicial appointments, specifically because um, McConnell was successful when Republicans had control of the Senate of completely blocking any sort of forward movement with uh, potential Obama appointees, such that now um, that Trump takes office, he not only had that first stolen seat that um, would have been connected to Mayor Garland, uh, but he also came in with a stacked deck of over a hundred, a backlog of over a hundred seats that were left open from the Obama administration. Then they went by and they convinced uh, older uh, conservative judges to retire early just so they can replace them with incompetent young conservatives. Mm-hmm. And so this has, you know, and still, and still, even in the face of that complete power grab and court packing, I mean, it's, it is it is the utmost of hypocrisy that you got Republicans around here talking about court packing, but that's exactly what they've been engaged in in the past 10 plus years, okay? Um, even in the face of that, you still have people wavering about whether or not it makes sense to add two extra uh, seats to this, at least two extra seats to the Supreme Court. Well, hell yeah! Look at all the seats that they stole, you know, including the two uh, that they got from um, Obama, but everything that they stole in the federal judiciary. Um, you still have, you know, I, I'm hoping, for example, that the Biden-Harris ticket wins because I believe that the Trump administration provides a mortal threat, particularly to black people, if for no other reason than the way that this whole coronavirus issue has been mismanaged. But, you know, I need I need Biden to be a little bit less, and I'm hoping that this is just a campaign sort of tactic, but I need for him to be a little bit less enthusiastic about wanting to, you know, So if, um, if, if 
Mm-hmm. You're being you're being given a mandate to correct course. Mm-hmm. They have shown who they are, and so I, I think now it's time to move forward in a direction uh, that allows uh, the Democrats not only to move in their sort of natural stance in terms of the culture of the party in regards to governing, but but in a way where you understand that the people want you to govern uh, in the direction that they have supported through their votes, which has been, and which I predict will be, an overwhelming rejection of the Republican Party. And therefore, there's no need to try to, um, you know, we don't, I don't, I feel like we should say, just like we say to, you know, terrorists, quote unquote, from other nations, mm-hmm. we don't negotiate with terrorists. And as far as I'm concerned, this Republican Party have shown themselves to be over the past three and a half plus years, terrorists. They have shown themselves to be domestic terrorists. They have shown themselves in many ways to be traitors to this nation. Why the hell would you negotiate with terrorists? No, you go through it, you put in the plans that your public who has voted for you to be there wants to be in action. You assume power and you implement power without hesitation, without apology, in the same way that the Republicans would if they had the opportunity. Yeah, I, I definitely um, I agree with you 100% in terms of what the Democrats should be focused on. Should they win uh, in terms of not seeking to uh, run to the middle on everything or, or anything, really. I mean, though, though the job of the Biden-Harris administration, should they win, would be a tall task because they would have so much to roll back that has already been done. Um, I want to kind of stay on the topic of political organ- organizing. Um, Post-George Floyd's murder, um, certain Black celebrities have chosen to speak out more on political issues. Now, I have no problem with people speaking out on political issues. That's fine. But I do have a problem with you speaking out on political issues when you're extremely influential and you don't know what you're talking about or you mislead people. For the average black person frustrated with the condition black people find themselves in here in America or across the globe, and they want to get their hands dirty and do the hard work of organizing for change what would you recommend they do first? You know, um, in terms of organizing for change, it's really, to me, it's about um, listening to your community. It's about being that person who's, first of all, registered to vote and who votes. And the reason why I'm being very specific about that, you cannot serve on a jury, for example, if you're not registered to vote. Mm-hmm. And, and, if, and if we know that, um, you know, one of our issues, which we all realize, is this issue of, um, you know, two systems of justice when it comes to criminal justice. More of us need to be on juries. So you need to register to vote uh, so that you'll even be in the mix for that. You definitely need to exercise your power of voting and to do so all up and down the ballot. But then it's your responsibility also to not only educate yourself, but educate your community around really what's at stake. Um, my challenge with what with, with, with a lot of these celebrities, who, many of whom have never done a damn thing for the black community in all their years of being celebrities, mm. so just also put that on the table. Um, now in the eleventh hour, have it seems as if alliances with an administration uh, that denies that systemic racism exists with an administration. Uh, that has said they're doing nothing about, they've just given up on coronavirus when it kills black people at damn near three times the rate that it kills white people. Um, You know, that has done really nothing in terms of trying to save the half of black businesses that we've lost during this corona-impacted economy, for example. Um, And I could give so many more examples, but I'll just say uh, I find it interesting that there are these alliances that appear to be drawn there out of nowhere Mm -hmm. uh, without also sort of educating themselves and the people really what's actually happening, why some of the things that people want have not been implemented. To give you a super quick example, sitting in Mitch McConnell's graveyard in the Senate right now are over 400 bills that were passed Mm -hmm. by the democratically controlled House of uh, 
representatives uh, that Mitch McConnell has specifically said he will not move on. Just to pull one out, because a lot of people like to say the CBC, the National Black Caucus, never does anything. You know, Google is free. Mm-hmm. Okay, number one. Number two, I will say this. To pull just one out, um, the Justice and Policing Act, mm-hmm. George Floyd Act. Within that act would be a ban on no-knock warrants. Within that act would be uh, the ability for private citizens to be able to sue police officers that uh, in any way hurt them, kill a family member, or you can actually sue the police officers personally instead of only having the option of suing the city if something happens, right? Uh, Within that um, is a uh, national registry, opposed to have a national registry where if a policeman messes up in one jurisdiction, he can't just go down the street and get hired by another police station. If that was in place, Tamir Rice would be alive today. For mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, there are, there are several examples of those types of provisions that are in the Justice and Policing Act brought to the floor by CDC members uh, on, in the House side, as well as championed in the Senate by uh, Vice Presidential Candidate Kamala Harris, as well as former um, presidential candidate and Senator, Senator Cory Booker on the Senate side. And the and it there is where it lies. So I say that because a lot of some of the things that are brought up in these quote unquote agendas mm-hmm. that popped up out of nowhere, <laughs> no black women included, mm-hmm. um, are things that already exist and would be law right now. If somebody's good buddy in the White House told Mitch McConnell to pass it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there was not one finger lifted to make that happen. And so I, I think it's very important that people are aware that, that you know, it, it, it will take some time. I don't expect people to be experts in this. You know, my PhD is in political science. I've been in the policy space for 20 years. So, of course, I know the minutiae to a greater detail than somebody who's out there every day just busting their butt trying to survive and make sure their family have a roof over their head. They don't have the time to, to do it. But let me just tell you, just know that you need to put in, try to put in a little bit more effort to find out what's behind um, the veil there. Because oftentimes what is being presented by a lot of these quote-unquote celebrities is a, it, it is, is, does not fully represent the facts, has a great deal of omissions, um, is specifically, I would argue, in many circumstances, meant to steer you in a specific direction such that if the election, for example, goes uh, towards the Donald Trump, these same people know that their taxes will go up because they make over $400,000. You know, these same people, some of them have business relationships that you might not know about um, that uh, could be, that they could then use to help them in other business ventures they have. And so I'm just saying that sometimes people have agendas that they're not fully fully transparent about, yet they are using us, black people, the black populace, in order to get an outcome that they will benefit from, but that could very well kill you and me. Don't just believe that because somebody has sold a certain number of albums, that they know what the hell they're talking about when it comes to policy, or even that they are coming from a, in all instances, a genuine place. When they position themselves as some leader of black people months before a critical election when they've had literally decades to do shit for black people but they've yet to do a damn thing and i think one of the most important things that i'm picking up about your answer is that political education is key to political organization so that's 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 that part of knowing what you're talking about um before you get engaged in the arena i think that was one of the um differences i see in say a little Wayne or Ice Cube uh, running to um, seemingly uh, cozy up to Trump in the 11th hour versus somebody like a Colin Kaepernick, who, when he decided to take his stand, he also um, educated himself on uh, the the police uh, 
the police, the policing in America and how that's formed and structured over decades, the Know Your Rights campaign, the various other charities and organizations that he's engaged. And he's he made it and an, an, uh, important to educate himself yeah. and then use that education in conjunction with his organization so that even though I may not agree with everything he said regarding voting or his political stance, at least he's made the effort to educate himself, which is more than I can say for some other celebrities. But sticking on that topic of um, political education uh, and why that's so important, I want to kind of talk about the work that you do um, in, in a political organizing space with the Black Women's Roundtable and how that organization communicates the needs and demands of Black women to legislators and the process used to collect that important data. Can you tell my listeners some more about that? She's been the leader of that organization now for well over 10 years. I wish I knew the exact number of years, but they do incredible work. Um, there are women across the country who are members of their local Black Women's Roundtable um, group. Uh, and all over the country, what we focus on uh, is making sure that the needs of Black women are heard by legislators and not only heard, but acted upon. Uh, in terms of, and, and I just want to say one other thing about that particular point, is I think it's important that people understand that, for example, when it comes to voting, that's just the starting gun of the race. It's not the finish line, okay? And so to me, what the Black Women's Roundtable focuses on is not just getting people to vote. It's putting pressure on elected officials, no matter who they may be, uh, in order to make our needs heard in an attempt to get legislation passed that would improve the lives of black women and families. Now, uh, in terms of what we do at BWR with the data that we collect, uh, a couple of different things. We have a annual survey that we've done now for six years with Essence Magazine, which is specifically meant uh, to uh, find out what are the main core concerns of black women. Uh, and we also have a, um, for over 10 years, for, has it been 10 years yet? I don't think it's been 10 years. Maybe about close to it, though, a little bit longer than the survey, maybe about eight years, we've been doing a um, State of Black Women in America report, pulling together various different data around the condition of black women on a variety of different measures on a variety of different spaces. And between those two efforts, um, the actual survey and the research around how black women are faring in a variety of different categories, we, in essence, are able to identify what's most important to black women and what's most critical to their well-being. And we don't just do this as a you know, research exercise. We do that in order to use it as an organizing tool to those women that are in their states, that are in the states, um, in that uh, as they're pushing for, for example, a piece of legislation around um, maternal mortality and how that impacts black women, they can use our research to be able to make a stronger argument around why there needs to be laws uh, that are put into place that will make sure that black women have greater access to better quality maternal care, for example. I'm just using that as an example. But that is what our goal is as an organization, particularly at the national level, to not only push for change in terms of national policy, but to be able to bring together the information that black women need in the field all across the country to be able to advocate at the state level, at the state and local level, for the different types of policy changes that they need in order to improve their lives, no matter where they are. I, I am um, not optimistic about this election. I can see it going the way of 2016, although I really hope that I'm wrong. And I am uh, a voter for Biden-Harris, and I know that you're a vocal supporter of the Biden-Harris ticket. But the question I want to know is, after the election, regardless of whether Biden-Harris wins um, or not, does the work of political organizers stop there? Do they just rest easy or do we or do we push 
Do we push Biden Harris even harder? Um, obviously, if Trump wins, of course, you know, it's more of the same. So, of course, there's no resting easy there. But if, if Biden Harris does win, um, does the political black political organizers rest easy or do they push them just as hard? You have to push. You have to push just as hard. <clears throat> In many ways, perhaps even more fervently because you have better leverage. And, and let me just explain to you really where I'm coming from with this. And I, and I hear you. I'm optimistic, but I am cautiously optimistic <laughs> about this election only because I know that uh, Trump and his minions will do any way to cheat their way, anything to cheat their way to a win. And that's always, already well um along the way in terms of being in progress. So, But if um, we do have uh, a victory for the Biden-Harris ticket, that just means we need we can take a minute. I'll give us, like, we can maybe have 24 hours celebrate. Okay, and then after that, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> get busy, okay? Mm-hmm. Because now is the time to get very serious about organizing about what you want. What do you want done in the first one? days um, what sort of pressure what do you want beyond that what sort of pressure are you going to put on this administration to make it happen um, I say that because you know to me one of my favorite quotes ever is Frederick Douglass's quote that power concedes nothing without demand it never has and it never will and that is absolutely true um, you know there even when you have a quote-unquote ally in positions of power, know that the very definition of how political power works, particularly in this nation, and but just how power works, period, I don't care in any circumstance. If you have a family member that's in the hospital, for example, if you are there advocating for your loved one, they will get closer attention than if nobody's there advocating for them. And it is the same thing when it comes to public policy, okay? Um, even when you have the person that you voted for in positions of power, the last thing that that should mean is that you sit back and rest on your loyals and be just, you know, coast for the next four years. Mm-hmm. Now's the time where the real work is done, where you hold them to account for what they owe you. Mm-hmm. Let me be very specific. For what they owe you for getting into the position of power that they find themselves in right now. I mean, I believe, honestly, one of the main reasons why there is specifically a Kamala Harris on that ticket is because um, it was made very clear to Biden that he owes black women, given what happened in South Carolina, saved his candidacy, resuscitated it from the dead. He owed black women representation on that ticket. Okay, he did it. Now, when hopefully they win office, they owe, they're going to owe some of that um, political power that they now have uh, to the votes of black people, meaning that it's time for us now to come there understanding that we have just as much um, right to political payback as any other group of people or any other demographic or any other quote-unquote agenda. I'm not a I am less enamored with, to be perfectly frank, agendas, because at the end of the day, an agenda is only worth the piece of paper that's written on. But I am very, very, um, I think it's very, very important to put in place political pressure, which would involve organizing, which would involve being being determinate about what is the first thing that I want them to deliver, and then organizing the outside pressure that's necessary and inside pressure where you have those connections so that you can have both of them going on at the same time in order to prioritize your issue over all these other issues that other groups and other constituents will be pushing at the same time. This is not the time to lay back. This is the time actually to be more vocal because let me tell you, when we lay back, other people aren't. And so we cannot be disappointed and surprised and mad if we're seeing movement on issues that represent demographics who are putting pressure and we're not also applying pressure. We need to be in that arena after the election, uh, I would argue even more fervently than before the election. I am a son. I am a cousin. I am a nephew. I am a uncle. 
I am a brother. I'm many things to uh, members of my family and friends. But one thing that I could never have the perspective of is that of a mother who is raising black children in society as it's uh, constructed currently. And, and, and I asked that question in the backdrop of George Floyd, um, his murder, in the backdrop of Breonna Taylor, you know, her murder, um, in the backdrop of the young man uh, in Philadelphia who was just murdered, Mr. Uh, Walter Wallace. As a mother who is raising black children, I believe you have a son, correct? You have two sons. As a, as a black mom, raising two sons, not Dr. Avis, the political scientist, the political organizer, the political commentator, the uh, public intellectual, the um, black uh, women leadership coach, the media coach. None of those things takes all those, take all of those hats off and just the mom raising two boys in society right now. How do you feel when they go out into the world and you have to trust and believe and have faith that they'll come back to you whole? How does that feel as a mom? That's really the most terrifying aspect of my life. Um, I am not the type of person that is scared of much. Um, I, I don't, um, in many respects, I would say on a lot of things, I'm a little unflappable. I don't give a damn what other people think about me, for example. You know, I, there's not much in life that I'm afraid of. But that is terrifying as a mother because you know that you have no control over what can happen to your children in a society that could either literally kill them physically or kill their sense of self and confidence and love in themselves of mm. themselves. And, um, and I, I know that since they were little, I really tried to arm them. I really thought of this as, so for example, I'll give you an example. My oldest son is 24. Um, when he was a, a little, little tyke, um, maybe around two or three, we were walking downtown Washington, D.C., and this ostensibly homeless man, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know if he was really homeless or he was <laughs> running a hustle, okay? Uh, but this, we just walk into our uh, co-op that we lived in at that time, and uh, this ostensibly homeless man uh, came up to G, and it's because he, as a, even as a little kid, he just had this, like, smile that would light up a room. Mm -hmm. And he... This man, looking all like in tattered clothes, apparently he had been panhandling all day, I guess. He reached into his inside pocket of his jacket and he pulled out a big old wad of cash. And he gave G a couple of dollars, right? Just because he could, I guess he was witnessing from afar how vivacious and happy he was on that day. And I remember in that sort of space of his life, things like that would happen to him a lot. He's a super gregarious, cute, fun-loving, uh, didn't meet a person that he didn't love type of kid personality. And he still has that personality to, his, to this day. However, I, I remember thinking even at that time, the world loves him now. Mm. When he's small, when he's cute, when he has a smile that'll light up the room. But... 10 years from now, mm -hmm. people will be crossing the street to get away from him. You know, 10 years from now, how will they treat him? And how will that make him think? What will that make him think about himself? And so I, I, would, I was very intentional with my boys from their youngest days to make sure that they understood their history and that they understood the battlefield that they were going to be growing up into in terms of this culture, because I really wanted to arm them from a young age with a strong sense of self. And I literally think of it as invisible armor that they have to put on every day 
to protect their spirit from how the hostility that they will receive just in the everyday normal navigating of life in the form in, in the black male form right and so i've been very intentional about that and i hope that i've done a job of um making my boys realize as they grow and they begin and i know they have had experiences that i know about and i'm sure they've had experiences that they've never even told me but i've tried to armor them with that knowledge such that they will know that whenever that happens and in whatever form it happens know that the problem isn't you the problem is them okay so i can do that as a mother and i put a lot of effort into doing that as a mother with both of my sons but i can't control if someone shoots them dead i can't control that right and so that's the part of it that is terrifying knowing that that can happen to any of us and to any of our children, to any of those people that we love. And, and that's why people react, especially people like me, um, but I think black people at large um, react so fervently to all of these injustices when we see them happening, because they we all know it could be us. It could be someone we love. It could happen to any of us. Um, that right there is the most terrifying part of loving your children and doing your and putting your heart and soul into your children and, and doing the best that you can to, to sort of arm them with the knowledge that they will need to save their physical lives perhaps but knowing that it may not be enough but also doing all that you can to in essence arm them with the knowledge that they need to protect their spirits so they don't let the heaviness of how cruel this world can be, let them think less of themselves. I want them to always look into the mirror and know that they are more than worthy. Knowing, know that they, honestly, the world in many respects doesn't even deserve them. I, I want them to have that type of attitude. Um, that is the best way that, you know, that I have found to fight back, but I know, I know it's insufficient because just the, the sin of growing up, right? Of gaining height, of gaining stature. Um, in this society, um, unfortunately, in many people's eyes, um, in and of itself, uh, is perceived as a threat. And, I, and I'm sure that uh, for, for, all the, for the brothers that's gonna listen to this, I'm sure that uh, fathers feel the exact same way about their sons and daughters. So I'm not trying to exclude fathers at all in any way, shape or form, because I'm sure they feel the exact same way. But the answer that you just gave is exactly why I believe that being engaged in the politics of your community and the politics of your government in any way, shape or form is just not optional. It is not optional. You don't have that luxury as black people in America. Okay. So we've reached the benediction portion of the program and I hate, uh, and I hate to take us out on such a heavy topic, but uh, here's the portion where I ask you what you're currently reading, what projects you have in the works and where the listeners can find you in these internet streets. <laughs> one of the, particularly as it relates to politics, one of the best places to find me probably is Twitter. Okay, I'm at Sister Scholar on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Facebook at Avis Jones DeWeaver, for example, on LinkedIn. Um, in terms of what I'm doing right now, projects that I'm working on, I do have a couple of businesses. I, I work with entrepreneurs to help them understand how to market their businesses through media and how to close more sales. So I have a brand new uh, cohort of clients that I'm bringing in, just having a ball working with my clients and making sure that their businesses are successful in this COVID era, which is very important. But I also have a new, um, a new love in terms of um, entrepreneurial venture that we'll be launching in 2021 called Next Black Media, and I'm super excited to get that off the ground as a space that. Um, you know, centers the black experience around a variety of different subject areas, everything from politics to black black wealth to black families and more. Um, 
we are really about um, sharing our genius with the world uh, and in a way that will help maximize black power. Um, so super excited for that to be coming out in 2021. And in terms of what I'm reading, uh, I have uh, a book that I'm reading around leadership, um, ironically, right. but this is leadership that has to do with growing your team as a business owner, because as I bring on more employees, I'm finding that it's a, it's a, it's an interesting, you know, as you're making that shift uh, to moving from, you know, solopreneur to bringing on contractors to bringing on like full-time employees mm -hmm. uh, as head of your own business, there are more of you. So trying to get better with that skill set. So that's basically it. Okay, and you also have a book that's out there as well. You want to plug that? Absolutely. So, ironically, my book is also about leadership. It's called How Exceptional Black Women Lead, and it's available on Amazon. And you can get more information about it by going to um, blackwomenlead.com. Is there anybody that you're reading right now that you feel like we need to be reading? Any one particular <laughs> book or author? Um, let's see. Well, right now, like I said, I'm, 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 I'm reading an author... Kelly wrote, she's written this sort of great book about leadership in terms of growing your businesses. Mm -hmm. um, but but generally speaking, um, also in that business realm, if anyone is interested in that, um, one of my favorite books is Sell or Be Sold. And uh, the reason why I, I call that out specifically, because I do notice with the people that I work with, just in terms of helping them grow their businesses, as black people, we need to be okay with asking for, demanding, and receiving compensation that is commiserate with our expertise and i find that a lot of us have an aversion to selling as if it's a bad thing or don't really ask for what we're worth like when we're um when we're looking to take on new clients for example and for me i believe a lot of that is tied to a history quite frankly of having been in this country for centuries working for free Mm -hmm. And so I think it's, it's very important that we need to get very comfortable with not only being paid, but being paid well for the genius that we provide in exchange. It's time to get paid for our labor. And so um, Celebrity Soul, I think, is a very good book for helping people who do have businesses or are in sales get comfortable with selling. Because unless you are selling consistently and at the level of compensation that you deserve, you'll never be able to bring in the revenue that will allow you um, even the, the, the put you in a position where you can begin to accumulate uh, intergenerational wealth. Dr. Avis, thank you for joining the Major Look Podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed it.